Good morning. It's good to see some of you back. Good to see we even have COVID masks in this podium. I don't know where this came from. That is, well, welcome. We are in the midst of Psalms 35 and 91, so I want to encourage you to turn there to Psalm 35, Psalm 91, today's Psalms, and if you're joining us today for the first time visiting, we are in the midst of going through the book of the Psalms, trying to get a good overall coverage of the Psalms, noting many of the common themes and the spirit of worship that comes out of the Psalms. So I'm glad that you're joining us today. We'll begin with Psalm 91, actually, of these two. Would you stand as we read God's word and acknowledge that this is his holy word inspired and inerrant for us? Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your excellent word. And we thank you that you have blessed us not only with it, but also with hearts that will listen, ears that are open, eyes that see. You've said that as your spirit works in us, Lord, that what was once blind eyes and deaf ears have been renewed and restored. And So we thank you for that. We pray that we would be teachable, humble, and receptive to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, both Psalm 35 and Psalm 91 speak about God's deliverance and protection from enemies. And you can see the encouragement here in Psalm 91 that's given to those who trust in the Lord. Multiple times we see God described as a refuge, as a fortress. He is a shield, a protection from our enemies. And who are our enemies? Here they are everything from people who in verse 3 set traps to non-human enemies like pestilence in verse 6 or plague in verse 10. And then 
In our other psalm, in in verses 1 through 6 of 35, we read, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuer. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And it may be that you don't think that you have enemies. And so when we read psalms like this and what they describe, you may feel a bit detached from them. But I want you to correct that thought this morning for in reality you actually have Enemies, and they are just as bad as the ones that the psalmist faced in their time. And to prove that to you, we have to go back to the beginning, to Genesis. And in chapter 3, verse 15, very familiar verse to most of you, we learn that God says that war will perpetually exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And we know that the seed of the woman ultimately refers to Christ, but we also know that in describing enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, what God is saying is that there's going to be this conflict that exists perpetually between those who follow God, called the offspring of the woman, and those who follow the devil called the offspring of the serpent. And the very first battle of this war is what? It's Cain and Abel. Right away, very first children of Adam and Eve. Cain is the offspring of the serpent. Abel is representative of the offspring of the woman. And contrary to what we might have expected, it's Abel that is the casualty of that battle. Cain who survives. And thankfully, Adam and Eve's next son, Seth, becomes Abel's replacement. And he restores hope to the seed of Eve. But it becomes clear as you read on through the chapters of Genesis and those early genealogies that these two lines, that of Cain and that of Seth, they represent this continuation of this spiritual conflict, this war between the wicked and the righteous. And by the time we arrive at Noah, it seems like the war may be over in a bad way, right? We don't see a nation of righteous men and women who are battling against a nation of the wicked. Instead, God tells Noah that the thoughts and desires of man, every man on earth, are only wicked all the time. And of of all existing humanity, God preserves just Noah, Noah and his family. And if that isn't bad enough, it's only a short time after disembarking from the ark that we're told both of Noah's sin and that of his son Ham's sin. And it just, where's the hope, right? In a near parallel to God's curses in Genesis 3 against Adam and Eve, we find the last part of Genesis 9. I mean, we've not even gotten through the first 10 chapters of Genesis. Chapter 9, curses against Noah and his family. It's a bit distressing. And what else do we see coming out of that time? We see a a reemergence of two lines, two genealogies. 
And we see the descendants of Shem, the descendants of Japheth and Ham. And we also see this continuation of a spiritual war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so it continues. And all of that will culminate again in a second, though lesser, worldwide judgment at the Tower of Babel. Well, today we are at the tail end of this millennia-old drama. And when we read accounts like those about Cain and Abel and Noah, we realize we're in the midst of a story that's a long time in progress. One that started with Adam and Eve, one that keeps going, and what may seem confusing and pointless or concerning to us now, whether it's the Ukraine-Russian war or China gathering at the border of Taiwan or North Korea threatening to bomb America out of existence or economic consequences and downturns and recessions or a hurricane in Florida or recent legislation to preserve same-sex marriages, all that needs to be seen against the backdrop of the past. We are at war, and we need to remember that our shield, our protector, our fortress, and our refuge is God. And David was a part of that drama too. His enemies were both physical and spiritual, and so we hear his prayer in Psalm 35, verses 22 through 25. You have seen, O Lord... Be not silent. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Right? You hear David, he's calling out to the Lord. He knows that the Lord is his only strength, his only vindication. And God is indeed the vindicator, the one who takes revenge for his people. But I think it's at this point that we need to add additional clarification to this conflict that we face because our enemies are not just outside of us, right? They're not just a Saul. They're not just the Philistines. They're not just your neighbors or, or something outside of you. But, but really, your greatest enemy is often your own flesh, Right? And if you fast forward from David's day, several centuries to Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel were consumed by other priorities, which God called idols, we find that the Israelites are serving these priorities of wealth and luxury and personal pleasure and seeking other gods of other nations, you name it, and yet they still are coming to the prophets of God. And they're asking for answers to their problems. And and I don't want us, again, to be so detached. I want us to see in that kind of attitude the same attitude that we have today where we go about our business Monday through Saturday pursuing our own interests and our own idols and that we want to come to the prophets, right? We want to come to the Word of God on Sunday and hear the answers to our problems, And listen to or look at what God says in Ezekiel 14.4 because it's sobering. He says, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity or sin before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes 
with the multitude of his idols. And what God is saying, it maybe is not what you think he's saying. He's not saying, I'm still going to answer him with his multitude of idols. What he's saying, if you read the rest of that chapter, is this. Because there are idols in your hearts, the only thing I'm interested in talking about right now is answering you according to your idols. I'm interested in addressing your idolatry and having you turn from them. You want wisdom? You want direction? You want vindication? You want protection? You want refuge, security, help in this war? You will not get any of it until you stop these wicked pursuits. That's what God tells the people of Ezekiel's time. It's really important for us to hear that today. Some of us, like the exiles in Ezekiel's day, have made idols out of our fleshly desires. And I'm not just talking about the obvious ones. I mean, if you heard that from me and you were thinking greed or selfishness or lust, those are the obvious ones, right? I'm actually talking about all of the idolatrous desires, probably the more common, subtle ones like personal comfort and safety. Because secretly in our hearts, we really want life to be like a resort. Why do I say a resort? It's because at a resort, you know, you get that nice big map of everything. And there's six restaurants and six pools and and, uh, tennis courts. And you, you know that everything's been paid for. And you can have as much as you want to eat or drink at some of the all inclusive resorts, right? And it's where your needs come first. That's really the theme of the resort. My needs come first, and I only have to do what I want to do when I want to do it and as much as I want. And the only demands at a resort are the demands we put upon ourselves because we live with a sense of entitlement. We paid money, and we have the right to expect certain things. Well, many of us live life that way. We live with a sense of entitlement. We reason that because we call ourselves Christians, because we come to church on Sundays and give up certain things, maybe even because we attempt to live our lives according to biblical principles, that we have the right to expect quiet and harmony and peace and respect. Be left alone from the troubles of the world. Of course, you know what I'm going to say, right? The scriptures don't describe life as a resort. But neither is life simply neutral either. Life is war. Life is war. And when we face these trials that inevitably we do as we start to live obediently and faithfully to God, when we face trials, which are really, if, if you will, kind of in this language of war, they're really these skirmishes or kind of minor battles, they expose the weaknesses in our armor. That's why they're so difficult and, and yet why they're so useful for God. God is kind of toughening us up. He's preparing us for the bigger things. And we don't radically change in a moment of trial. Instead, we change through a myriad trials. A lot of small things that expose our self-righteousness and our impatience and our unforgiving spirit and our lack of servant love and the weakness of our faith and our craving for comfort and ease. They expose the idols that are fighting for control of our hearts and we don't like it how many of you like it I don't like it 
We often answer back with blame shifting and self-justification. I'm reminded of a short five-chapter autobiography that I once read. It says, chapter one, I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in, and I am lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I pretend I don't see it, I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it's not my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk, I see it, I still fall in, it's a habit, but now my eyes open, I know where I am, it, it is my fault actually, I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk, I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. Right? We are engaged in a war, constantly learning through these ineffective, unproductive habits. Satan likes nothing more than to see God's people falling into the potholes of habitual sin. And yet he has given us everything we need. He will not call us to do anything without providing us the strength and the ability to do it. Right, whether it's the Red Sea or anything else. But it's so surprising how our lives become dominated by concerns over the physical world that can be seen, that can be touched, that can be tasted, whereas this, there's around us this more significant unseen world of the spiritual, but it seems so unreal to us and distant. And it leads us to believe two deadly lies. The first is the lie that the physical is more real than the spiritual. That's part of the reason why we keep falling in those holes. We become blind to the spiritual around us. We just kind of have our heads down. We eat. We, we get up. We go to work. We do the same routine every day. We come back. We go to sleep. And we start it all over again. And we believe this lie that the physical is really more real more present, more important to worry about. It is what provides us our happiness, or so we think. And then the second lie is that this current reality is permanent. It certainly doesn't appear to be passing away. We, we can think back and look at the history books, right? And, well, the people 15 generations before us were doing the same things that we're doing now, and they probably will 15 generations from now do that. Same exact routine, day after day after day. And so we come to believe that under the sun is where we live, move, and have our being here. It's so different from the biblical perspective. Asaph in Psalm 73 says that the prosperity of the wicked, it's like a dream. It's a great, it's a great way to describe life right now. It's like a dream. It seems real. It is real, and yet it is not the full story. It's, but a, it's like a shadow of the ultimate reality. The earthly goods that a person acquires, they're passing away. They will be handed off to someone else. The physical world that we live in will not be our ultimate reality. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 
16, Paul says it this way, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. How many of you getting older are are really latching on to that verse, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen. That's what I was talking about a moment ago. What should be our ultimate focus? Not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so his focus on the spiritual and the eternal orients his life. Why? Because Paul knew that this current order is passing away. And Christ said, what good will it be for a man if he gains even this whole world and yet loses his soul? John warns us in his first letter not to love the world or anything in the world. And that theme is everywhere in Scripture. And so you are wise if you live for what you cannot see. Because you know that from the beginning, God warned Adam, he warned Eve, he warned Noah, and many more besides them, that there would constantly be a war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And in contrast to that, overarching story, overarching reality, the fool, we read, lives to build another barn to store away what is perishing and useless in the world to come. The wise person longs for blessing, the fool craves for reward. The wise person looks to eternity, the fool lives for the moment. What happens when we live opposite to what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, when we focus on the now and have this world in our minds, we tend to live in a peacetime mentality. What we do is we orient our own lives so that we can be as far removed from the chaos that we see around us. Yes, we acknowledge that Wow, we're in the midst of a culture war. We acknowledge that we have uh, on the verge maybe of judgment by the Lord for our entire nation, right? We, we acknowledge those things. So what do we do? We, we try to retreat. We go into the countryside to have a house of property by ourselves. We, we try to distance the city centers so that we're not as directly affected or so we think. And in this time of, of peacetime mentality, people tend to give themselves, this is at least historically, to luxury and leisure and pleasure. But in times of war, I want to contrast that, in times of war, what do people give themselves to? Well, the factory that produced the luxury components, what does the factory now do? It's been retooled, right? It, it produces the electronic equipment for battle. The assembly line that produced luxury cars produces tanks. Young men go to military training. And the point is, there is a war out there. There's a war around us. There is a reality that is beyond just this. 
And it's being fought on the turf of our hearts, not only the idolatry that grips our hearts, like I said in Ezekiel's day, just like in our day, but also in the hearts of our children. It is fought for the control of our souls. And each situation that we're facing is a minor battle in the war. And if you're not aware of the battle, watch out. Because there is a scheming enemy out there that is waiting to deceive, to devour, to destroy. You cannot forget. You cannot relax. It is not peacetime. We've talked often about even mentality of of leaving California and going to some of the other states. And there's not... It's not in and of itself something bad with that. But the mentality sometimes can be the escaping from the battle, right? And one of our encouragements has been, if, if you're going to leave somewhere, you need to leave as if you're going to a, a, a rear guard action. Like you're going to a place where this, this place where I'm going is going to make me more effective in the battle, than where I am right now. There's a calling to this place, not just an escape from this place. Why? Because the battle rages all around us. There are hot spots, that's for sure. But you will be engaged in a war your entire life. And wise, mature, godly people, they live aware of the spiritual. They are aware of it in every situation of their life. They know that while Solomon talks about there's nothing new under the sun. They don't just live as if that's all that there is. And friends, you know all of this already, I think. You've certainly heard it before, and I've said it to myself many times. So why is it that we're so lazy? (laughs) Why are we so lacking in vigilance? Why don't we act like life is war with battles to be fought and won? Like every moment, the enemy is looking for opportunities to divide and conquer. Well, one reason we don't is is that we simply don't fear God as we should. And maybe you think I should say trust God rather than fear God. After all, we do see this trust exhibited in Psalms 35 and 91 of where's the first resource that David calls out for for help? It's the Lord. But I was careful in the choice of fear over trust because I want you to hear this, that faith and trust and wisdom and even obedience, they come after fear, after a reverential awe of our God. John Calvin once wrote, all wickedness flows from a disregard for God. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us to indulge in every kind of sinful conduct. He knew that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He knew that the fear of God is that which promotes a right understanding of the Lord, a right understanding of us, and actually motivates us to greater faith and trust. And the fear of God flows out of an understanding of who God is. 
Certainly in Psalms 35 and 91, we, we read about the greatness of God, the, the strength of God, the sovereignty of God. We see in verse 11 of Psalm 91 that he commands his angels on our behalf. In other Psalms, we learn that he is the God of tornadoes and is a consuming fire and that the wrath of God is a fearful sight. The book of Daniel tells us that God uses whole civilizations to work out his purposes. As C.S. Lewis would say in the Narnia books, God is not safe, but he is good. And even his goodness leads us, even his kindness leads us to a proper fear and obedience, right? At least when we truly understand it. Even as we saw last week in Psalm 33, there are more than 150 references to the fear of God in the Bible. And it is this attitude of reverence for the holy purity, the consuming righteousness of God. In the book of Acts, in in chapter 9, verse 31, we learn how the early church was strengthened and encouraged How? Because they lived in the fear of the Lord, it says in Acts chapter 9. We cannot fear God too little and man too much. So how do we cultivate that type of attitude? We cultivate it as Exodus 20.20 says, Do not fear man, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Simply being afraid of God, as in like the quaking fear, will lead us to actual distrust and disobedience, but fearful awe, reverential awe, respect for God, knowing who he is, knowing who we are, will keep us serious about the important things. So that was, that's part of what we need to do to start seeing the unseen world. A second thing that we need to do is to recognize that if one of our greatest enemies is our flesh, then we need to actively and aggressively and directly counter it with the fruit of the Spirit. James 3, 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And if you look at that closely, you go, really, every vile practice accompanies jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what James says. Including some of the super sins. Right? Some of the lists in, in the Bible like unclean passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, we keep going. They all accompany jealousy and selfish ambition. James continues and he says, but the wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So friends, what I want to do is I want to gather our our minds. You know, we've been talking about several different things today. And I've been saying that we must think about being in the midst of a war, of having these battles to fight And I want you to think of this as as this. There's a difference between saying, 
America is at war. Let's say we were at war with something. We're at war with Iraq, right? There's a difference between saying that we collectively are at war and I am at war. You can say collectively, we as the church are at war and again, kind of be detached from the whole process. But when you say, I am at war, you realize war is an active enterprise. It requires that I actually do something to win. I actually have to pull a sword out of the scabbard, right? I have to pull the the word of God out. I actually have to exercise these weapons of war. And James tells us that they are things like purity and peace and gentleness and more. Teachability. They're the very opposite of what you might think would be war weapons. They are the fruit of a contented and a humble spirit. And I want to say that the offspring of the serpent have always been marked by jealousy and selfish ambition. Ever since Cain, the seed of the serpent has sought to get ahead through the development and advancement of civilization and culture. If you look at the genealogy of Cain, what is emphasized in the book of Genesis? He developed this. He developed this. He developed this. He built this city and named it after himself. He built it, you know, when you go to the genealogies after Noah, Nimrod the great hunter was, you know, they are men and women trying to make names for themselves, trying to develop on an earthly level, a worldly level, civilization and culture, all in the hope of finding something, something that will bring lasting satisfaction and success. Jealousy, selfish ambition. And one of the most important keys to the war in which you will find yourself, particularly the battles you will go through every single day, is to understand that lasting satisfaction and joy comes from God meeting your needs and you going to him for that resource. The Canaanites, the Egyptians, Americans will never be satisfied because none of them seek to have their needs met in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We lose battles in this war typically because we have allowed the idols to become the idols that they are because we have allowed fleshly desires to become so powerful in our minds that we are convinced that they are our real needs. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul says that our desires are deceitful. And when we are deceived into thinking that we have unmet needs, when we see others possess those supposed needs, and we don't have them, we become jealous, we become self-seeking like James describes, and God will not, as we saw with Ezekiel, promise to provide for those desires that we have turned into needs. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And he did not mean the truth will set you free without a battle. He meant the truth would be the key to freeing us from these deceitful desires that we turn into idols. But you have to fight. And life is war. 
In 1 Peter 2.11, we read, Beloved, I urge you to, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war. Do you see how, given everything that we've been talking about, this, this passage now should stand out even more powerfully, even more intensely. I urge you as exiles and sojourners, this is not, this is not everything. You're sojourners and exiles into something that you're moving to something even better and greater. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, those things that we are turning into idols that are distracting us from the war, and because these actually are the war. And they are waging war not against just this nation, not just against your family, not just against you. They are waging it against your soul. That's what's at stake. That's how serious it is. That's why Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He knows how difficult it is. And you can hear it in the implied in the, his own rhetorical question, the answer. The answer is not what will deliver me, but who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from myself? And that brings us back full circle to our morning psalms. Yes, we hear the psalmist crying out to God to protect them, but these cries for help are grounded in the psalmist's delight and contentment in God. It's not the cry of someone who lives outside of God's pleasure and presence six days a week and comes in that seventh day and just, please, Lord, you know, help me. The cries of David are grounded in his delight and contentment and satisfaction in God and his recognition of his own sin. As we read in Psalm 35, verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. What the offspring of the woman and the children of God have always realized is that the things of the world are not ultimately satisfying. It's why it's so interesting. I think this, the, the descendants of, of Seth are so epitomized by kind of the, the shepherds and the, the, the nomadic people, the people that don't settle down per se in the cities. We could talk more about that some other time. But if you trace that through, as I said earlier, this, this idea of jealousy and selfish ambition and the in the development of self that we see epitomized in the line of Cain. Opposite of that, we see the offspring of the woman there. It's not that I'm saying that you have to go live in, off the land. I'm not saying you have to go become a farmer. But what I am saying, it's interesting that of these two lines, this stereotype, this epitomizing of 
the, the civilization culture and city development versus the line of, of Seth. But the point is that the offspring of, of the woman, the children of God, are ultimately satisfied by God and not the things of this world. Whereas Cain and his descendants could make city after city and they could develop one technology after another and one artistic skill after another, but those never brought true joy. They all died in the flood. (laughs) And later when it came to the Exodus, God used Moses to convince his people to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. And he told Moses, he says, I want you to explain to the people the parallels between their existence in Egypt and the way life became after the Garden of Eden. I want you to explain to them how what happened was this corruption of God's original intentions and order, and that there is a way to restore that original order, to go to Canaan, to go leave Egypt in what represent chaos, and again, kind of the, the emphasis of selfish ambition and jealousy and its self-exaltation. Leave that behind. Go to the promised land. Leave those types of things behind and go to where I am, where I'm going to give you things, where I'm going to be your provision and your sustenance. Trust me. Well, it didn't end there, friends. God says the same thing today. Is there an extent to which you are enamored with the world? Is, if you said, what is my identity? And I say this to all ages today. If you were to ask yourself, what is my identity? What are the most important things to me? And if you're having trouble answering that honestly, then say, if I picked three people around me, you know, a family member, a friend, and somebody, a coworker, and I were to ask them without prompting, what, are, what is this person's identity? What are the things that are important to them? Well, they come up with the same answers. Are you tasting and seeing the world and its poisonous self-interest and self-ambition? Or are you instead tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Are you stuck in Egypt? Is God inviting you to the promised land? Are you like the exiles coming to God one day a week, only when you need help? Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Another psalm says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And if it's better than life, well, then that's pretty much better than anything this world offers, right? I think I see in our own Central Valley, our own state, cities of California, I see parallels with Cain and Egypt and corrupt Israel and Babylon and Rome. They all have parallels to our own state and nation's culture and society today. We live in, this, in California at the, 
the seed of progress and the cutting edge of civilization, right? We also live in California, an immoral and wicked state. And we're surrounded on all sides by wealth and power and success, and it's just like what we see in the pagan cultures of the scriptures. What are we to do? We're called to be different. We're called to be prepared for the battle, called to consecrate ourselves to the Lord by living holy lives, called to identify the idols of our heart. We have an Eden to look forward to. And it isn't the earthly Canaan. Canaan was just, that was supposed to be a a, a shadow. It was a foretaste of heaven. And we can hope and long for this restoration. We know God will lead us, but he will not, he will not, Answer us, but according to our multitude of idols, if that's how we come to him. He wants to use us, but he wants to use a child that is dependent, humble, teachable, pure, peaceable, all the things that we read in James 3. I want to encourage and challenge all of us today to have the attitude of self-evaluation that Paul calls for. Ask yourself, what is it that's between, you know, keeping me distracted? What is it that is an idol of my heart? What do I need to address? How can I remember and stop falling in the hole? How can I remember that life is war and God wants to use me? Let's pray. Lord, you are an amazing and An awesome God, you've taught us so many things in your word. I thank you, Lord, for the confidence that David has in in Psalm 35, that the psalmist has in Psalm 91, that both are able to call out to you, to rely upon you, but Lord, I, I want us to not have gone through these psalms And just think that the answer is this very easy prayer when we're in the midst of difficulty or we need to be faithful, obedient. We need to be fighting this war. And I pray that you would help us to recognize what surrounds us and what the stakes are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.